So the ego is at most a helpful term. See, I, I start with so, so that people will think we've been going on and on. <laughs> And I'll be using the word ego today primarily the way people use it in everyday conversation or the way it's used in Eastern literature systems. And it really is just a term because the only fact that there is is that God is all. That's the only lesson that we're learning. And so an ego is really just a description of darkness. It's just a description of of these dancing shadows in this dark closet that we've opened and peered into. And we look at these shadows and we say, how do the shadows work? How do the figures that I'm seeing in this darkness relate to each other? What is the progression and so forth? And so ego is a very helpful word in understanding how all that takes place. But it's very important to understand that it doesn't matter how it takes place. And the only reason that for even discussing it would be to simply put that question to rest so that if you find that this is a nagging question as to how does the world operate, this is one way of describing it. We've talked many times here how there is this perennial truth that's come to the planet over and over again. And really all that varies between the various great religions and systems and inspirational books and so forth are the terms that are being used. Behind it is a very simple truth that love works and attack does not. That love is our inheritance, that love is our nature, and that attack is of no use to us, no matter how pretty it may seem to be. So I will begin with the discussion of terms, the way we're using them here at the Dispensable Church. And this is based, to some degree, the way they are used in A Course in Miracles, although I've added a few. But please don't think that this makes any difference. The terms make any difference. If they, if they help you, then use them. If they don't help you, then just forget them. So we've talked here about what could be called the collective ego. Maybe it would be better if I started with the, the spiritual side. In all systems and religions, you have basically three things that have to be described. <coughs> you have what might be called uh, nirvana or truth or God or the absolute or universal love. Uh, uh, Richard Bach calls it the is. That has to be described. What is basic reality? What will never fade? What can we count on? in this world in which everything changes, is there anything that is still, that is kind, that is constant? And the answer, of course, there certainly is. And that goes by many names. 
So the system has to describe it. The first real attempts to describe this came during the Transcendental Movement, just before the turn of the century. And there, the most popular description at, at that time was by Mary Baker Eddy. And what she did was simply use sort of a combination of Christian and scientific terms. Of course, in Miracles uses all Christian terms. So there's God, truth. That's on the one hand. Then there is the world as, we, as it appears to us. There's life as it seems to go on. This thing that we're caught up in. This being born and dying and, and this little uh, soap opera that we all find ourselves in. And that can be called Maya or the illusion uh, or the relative or countless other terms. There's no end to the terms. So that has to be described in some way. And then, how do you get the two together? Or how does light shine away darkness? Or what is the process of awakening? Or what is the process of making progress or advancement? Of opening up the heart? How is the heart transformed? How do we become good, kind people? How do we begin living a happy life? That has to be described. And so, in Course in Miracles and in the dispensable church terminology, you have God, and it could be said that a small part, a very small part of the mind which is God fell asleep. And this the Course in Miracles calls the Son of God or the children of God. In the, in the Bible, it's referred to as Adam. Adam fell asleep. So a question was answered, and a very small part of the mind of God answered the question. So the vast part of reality remains unaffected by this dream. And this everyone who's had a mystical or spiritual experience has said. That the overwhelming part of reality is actually not even cognizant of all these things that we think are so important. Now that small part could be called the Son of God. And the Son of God fell asleep, and just as we do at night, the Son of God dreamed a dream in which he divided himself up into many bodies, just like we do at night. We fall asleep and our mind divides itself into many figures and things. They're all our mind. It's all produced by our mind. It's all contained within our mind. And all the minds that appear to be behind the, the figures in the dream are still our mind, but it's divided into many parts. So it could be said, for example, that the Son of God scattered himself and this becomes the children of God. Now, when we dream at night, we dream that we are a particular body within the dream. And that's all an ego is. A single ego is simply the single body with which we identify. It's the process whereby we believe that we are now not dreaming, but we are 
we are in some, something, someone else's dream. That's what we do at night. So we think all the circumstances that surround us, we have nothing to do with. We have no control over. And it seems very real to us. But the process whereby we identify with this one particular body in the dream at night could be called the process of having an ego. Now, the only difference between that and what's going on here is, of course, as, as has been said over the last several thousand years, is that because there is a mind behind each body, because the Son of God scattered himself and there's a mind behind each body, each person wakes up at what appears to be a different time, because the dream is a dream of time. And so we seem to relinquish our particular ego at a different time than most other people, although we do relinquish it usually with a spiritual family. So there's usually a, a group that relinquish it at the same time. None of this, I say, is important. We're just describing darkness. We're just talking about what goes on in the dream. Because the ego believes that knowledge is power. And of course it isn't when you're talking about how the dream functions. None of this really matters. This just happens to be the way the whole thing is set up and described in a particular terminology. So behind your ego there is a self and that self can be turned to. That self could be felt. It, it has nothing to do with uh, our personality. So it's very much like being in a dream at night and suddenly someone walking up to you or handing you a book that says, well, do you, do you realize, of course, that um, you're not in this, these set of circumstances. You're another person sleeping in a bed. Well, this could be very scary because we think that our identity is the body that's in the dream. And someone says, no, your identity is, the, is another body sleeping in a, in a bed. And we don't want to be that body sleeping in the bed because our identity is caught up in all the circumstances <coughs> that surround us. And so there's, of course, a tremendous resistance to walking a spiritual path, to beginning a gentle awakening process, to turning to God. Because we think we're going to be swallowed up in this process. We're going to lose, it, lose everything that we are. And this very identification called the ego is that resistance. It's a wish to maintain an identity in a dream. And there's a great deal of fear about giving this up. So releasing the ego is simply releasing fear. There's nothing more to it than that. If you take the world as a whole, you could use a term such as the collective ego. And if you want to think of all the selves behind all the egos, you could say the collective son of God. Or as A Course in Miracles calls it, the sonship. It's all one thing. There's really only one self and there's really only one ego or, or mental mistake, one dream. 
And also in this church, we have used the term higher ego, which of course is in quotes. It doesn't actually mean that a part of the ego is actually spiritual. But we've talked about how the ego adapts when we begin a spiritual path. And it begins quoting truth. And so a lot of the voices that people hear are unfortunately the voices of the higher ego. But because they are coming to them in an unusual manner, they put a tremendous emphasis on this. So this is a very good self-defense uh, mechanism that the ego uses. We've talked about the ego as an imaginary playmate. We've talked about how the child's imaginary playmate defends itself. And so this is a very good defense mechanism. is for the e ego to simply start citing words of truth. Now, all disagreements over words of truth come over how the truth is to be translated into behavior. And every the reason that there are a hundred churches in this little town, and there is half the population that has no interest in attending any of them, and that there's all these systems, all these books, is because it's not that the truth isn't simple, but that everyone thinks that truth has to be translated into behavior. You've got to act a certain way because the truth is true. Of course, that's not so. <clears throat> truth has nothing to do with behavior. It has to do with love. It has to do with kindness. It has to do with the gentleness of the heart, an innocent vision, an embracing, a total acceptance. But it, but it doesn't have anything to do with the way we act or dress or the kind of language we use. Because it's clear that almost any kind of language, dress, behavior can, except in very extreme instances, be quite loving in a particular circumstance. Of course, there are some extreme examples that, that are almost always forms of attack. But most of the things that organizations quibble over are that one person says a particular form of behavior is, is always an attack, and the other group says, well, but look, over here, it's not. So you take, for example, when I was growing up as a boy, uh, I went to Christian Science Sunday School. Now, in, in the Christian Science Church, you couldn't smoke. You couldn't, you couldn't become a member of this. And I remember as a, as a boy uh, thinking that people who smoked were evil. They were bad people because I had centered on this behavior. I'm not saying that's what Mary Baker Eddy taught. I'm just saying that as a child growing up in those circumstances, and that people who went to doctors and hospitals were somehow weak or bad people. Once again, this is not actually what Mary Baker Eddy taught, but it's sort of the thought that I had about the whole thing. And probably in every one of your experiences, there's been a certain centering on behavior. And this is what makes truth so deadly. This is, what, this is the reason it's very difficult to even use the word God anymore in a, in a group of people without having some people get up and walk out because they're thinking of all the bumper stickers that they've seen all their lives, you see. <laughs> and they think that this, this has to do with walking some narrow, bitter path, some trek of martyrdom, some, some sacrificing in blood, and God is such a relief, such a joy, such a profound peace that when we experience this, that that's just so silly. That people would 
get caught up in that. But nevertheless, people have. And so the more traditional terms that are used to describe this whole process are tainted. I personally don't know what to do about that when I know that I'm talking to, for example, an all-medical staff in which very few people would use the word God. I don't use any spiritual terms. I'm even careful about using the word love. <laughs> but there are perfectly adequate substitutes. You can talk in any language. You know, you can say it in other ways, and you're still saying the same thing. And, and, in, and in an audience that is more traditionally Christian, I would not use exactly the same words that I use here. What I'm assuming is that most of you have gone through something similar to what I've gone through, and that is a long atheistic or at least doubting period in your life in which you sort of threw everything out. And then, because of your honesty, you began sort of trying to see what you thought was going on, sort of a, a deep searching of your own integrity, and you begin to think, well, now this, I think, is probably true, and this is probably true, and you've sort of carefully gotten back on what might be called a spiritual path, although you may not use that term. And so I, I feel like this church is sort of halfway in between the traditional kinds of organizations and, and the more... Uh, agnostic type organizations. I'm assuming a certain tolerance for language of the people who come here. I'm, I'm assuming I can say it in a number of different ways and not offend people. So the way we become happy is by relinquishing the ego. The ego's sole purpose is to make you unhappy. That's its only function, that's its only aim, is to make you unhappy. Now this right there takes a leap of faith for most people that there is a part of their mind that actually argues against their own happiness, that actually suggests things that it knows will make them miserable. This is difficult for us to accept. Is there actually a part of my mind that always suggests just the thing that will make me most uncomfortable there obviously is. And this we will call the ego. Just, it's just a simple sort of lump it all together term. Now, when you dream at night, and you dream that you're a particular body, then you also dream that this body has a particular mind. For example, if you were... So hallucinating and fantasizing and dreaming and what's going on here, and it's all the same thing. It's exactly the same, just different words for the same process. So there are people, of course, who hallucinate. Even within this hallucination, they bring in other hallucinations, you see. Uh, and we all know about that. Uh, DTs is a very common example of how that can work. So this thing that we think we are in the dream appears to have a mind. And many of the Eastern systems won't even use the word mind. They actually use the word mind for the word ego. 
So they talk about actually giving up your mind. That's a perfectly good. It just I don't use it that way. I use the word mind the way the Course in Miracles uses, which is this, there's something within us that's split, split between the ego and the self of God. So we somehow seem to be the, the transitional thing in all of this. But you have an ego mind. And it thinks ego thoughts. And one of the things that happens as we go along is we realize that there is a whole train of thought that is not our thought. It is not. It doesn't come from our heart. These aren't even our opinions. This isn't even the way we look at the world. It's the way we. It's the way our imaginary identity looks at the world. It's the way our self-image would look at the world. And since we believe that we have a self-image, we believe that the self-image looks at the world in a particular way. So in a dream at night, we get caught up in thinking we're one particular body. Now, what happens as soon as we do that? Well, now we're at war, at least a little bit, with every other body in the dream. Because we're just this one little body. And so all of our interests now are centered around the body. So if we were to hallucinate, for example, that we were a duck. People can do this, incidentally. I'll take you to some places where there are stranger things than that going on. But let's say suddenly you thought you were a duck. Now, your real self, most of you, loves New Mexico. But is this a good place for a duck? <laughs> the kind of rainfall we have, do you see? And uh, if you were a duck, you would look down at your feet and you'd say, I need to be Rolf. I'm walking like a duck. You see? <laughs> But, of course, you would, you would take to the dispensable church like a duck takes to water. And moans would fall off of you like water off of a duck's back. Now, you see, if you think that you're, you think, if you're, if we think we're a duck, you see how everything changes? Now there are openings you can go through that you couldn't go through before. You know, doors are quite big now. And uh, do you avoid mud puddles and ask, will this get my feet dirty or will I catch a cold if I get my feet wet? You don't ask those questions, but you have a whole new set of questions that you ask. If you think that you're a duck. That's all that's going on. We all think that we're ducks and that we're just swimming on this vast sort of confusing pond. You see, we're separate from each other and that our hearts are not united. And that no one's really our brother and our sister. And that we have to go around judging how everybody says things and how they make progress and what stages they're going through. And because there's one gentle mind behind it all, none of this is necessary. Because our heart is united with the heart of everyone else. And that all this will end when we simply see that everyone is our brother and sister, that we have nothing to fear from anything that surrounds us because only God surrounds us. And then heaven will be a place where only innocence is seen. But most of us do not want to see innocence. This is very important to understand. Why is it that we haven't relinquished our egos? Because we do not want to see innocence. We, we, we don't wish to do that. 
we want to think that someone out there is guilty because their radio is too loud. So. <laughs> it's just someone playing a radio. That's all that's going on. It's perfectly innocent. The radio's innocent. The person's innocent. <laughs> So the ego is a defense against God, and God is happiness. God is simply happiness, and the ego is simply a defense against God. So that's all an ego is. It's how not to be happy. And there are various ways that the ego goes about assuring this. Very obvious. If you ask yourself, how do I make myself unhappy? You're now, you're now looking at your ego. How do I make myself, how do I make my life miserable? Why is it that I'm not happy? Why is it that I can't walk through a day in peace? Why is it I have so much trouble with my friends? Why is it I can't get a job that satisfies me? Why is it that my health is on and off, on and off? When we look at that and never be afraid to look at it, gosh, the acoustics got much better. <laughs> my voice is richer and more methodist. <laughs> When we look at that, we're looking at, at the ego. So don't be afraid to look at it because it's crazy. Look at it carefully enough and you will drop all the ways that you make yourself miserable. So how do we make ourselves miserable? Well, first of all, by criticizing. Criticizing the things around us. How can we enjoy where we are if we are criticizing the things around us? Isn't it obvious we can't? But the ego judges, 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 scans every conversation. Now that I'm doing a lot more speaking in different parts of the country, I've become aware that a certain percentage of any group that comes to hear me comes to disagree. <laughs> now, they probably don't realize that that's their motive, but it's quite clear to me that they are just sitting there. And we've all done this, haven't we? We've gone to hear someone speak or we picked up a book that someone's recommended too, too heavily, you know. They're just too enthusiastic about this book. And we're sitting there for seeing what is not right about it. And, we're, and there's this almost ego relief when they make a mistake. So we do this about everything. We do this about restaurants, about colors, about sounds, about our own children about the very person we've chosen to walk through life with. We will turn that criticism even on this. How can we love? Gail and I uh, were doing some marriage counseling recently. As a matter of fact, I can think of two different couples that this applies to. Um, and um, these two people got into a heated almost vicious argument about when they were going to get married. <laughs> they were bringing up old mistakes that each other had made to try to force the other person into the proper date. See, and How should the proper date? Should the date be something that would be convenient to the family members, the people who would have to come here, or should it be selected astrologically? You see? 
Of course, there's no way to resolve this question if you take a position. It has to be astrologically right or it has to be right for mom and dad who have to come from Podunk, you see. Now, here's the person that they were trying to live with for the rest of their lives. Yeah, we can open those windows if you want to. Of course, the radio will come through the windows. You understand? <laughs> A second way that we make ourselves miserable is by anticipating. So many of us went to Zazobra. Now, one of the big questions. You see, you're walking along. This is, could be a nice thing. The whole purpose is to have fun. But do we have fun? No. Because we are not there. We, we are somehow, we're not even walking there. We have to decide which car we're going to walk over. Which hood? Well, you know, this is one of the traditions in the Zobra. You have to walk over somebody, the hoods of somebody's car to get there. And so, here we are, instead of just enjoying our friends, we're looking and deciding which car we're going to have to climb over, you see. Then we sit there and we wonder when all the announcements and the, all that's going to be over and the burning's going to take place, you see. We sit there. We're not, we can't enjoy it. We can't enjoy our friends. We can't enjoy the night or anything because now our whole thing is going and then Zizobra starts to burn what happens maybe there's a few seconds of being caught up in all this light and all the people who've put this together and and so forth and the crowds have gathered and how all these people have come together for this celebration and everything maybe a few seconds of that then should I leave now starts entering our <laughs> should I avoid the crowd you see what route should we take? So anticipating puts the mind in the future. Now, why does the ego do this? Because the ego can only exist in a time that is not real. So the ego invents past and future. There is no God in the past, and there's no God in the future. So the ego lives totally in the past and the future, which means totally out of happiness. And so as we forget to anticipate, we are happier. What you enjoy most is what you can do most in the present. If you'll just look at your life. Maybe it's some chore around the house that you just love doing. You're in the present when you do it. Maybe it's this particular friend or couple or something. Or maybe it's listening to particular music. You are in the present. That's the reason we're happy. It's because <coughs> we're most in the present. Another favorite ego tactic to make us unhappy is learning from our mistakes. Now this almost seems logical. <laughs> and it can combine with the, uh, with the anticipating. So uh, David and I, we grew up in Texas, when we sat down to to eat a meal, we would first eat our T-bone, and we would be thinking not about the T-bone. We would be thinking about the potato with the works, because we hadn't gotten the potato with the works, do you see? So even while we're doing something simple like walking, or something simple like eating, the simplest kinds of things, our mind is one step ahead, and this is what causes us to be anxious. 
It's because we cannot even enjoy the piece of food we're putting in our mouth because our mind is jumping to the next piece of food. And after the uh, potato with the works, then there's the mud pie. And uh, But of course, David and I are now on a spiritual path. And uh, so now we can't even enjoy our yin-yang yams, you see. <laughs> Because we're thinking of the uh, mung bing sorbet, you know, <laughs> and the glass of carrot juice, and all that. <laughs> and did we forget to drink the eight ounce glass of water before we started the meal? You see, all this, of course, what it does is it shifts the mind out of where God is located, where our self is located, where peace is located. There can be no peace in the future because the future is in conflict with the present. The future is not the present. Has the radio stopped? <laughs> Maybe. It's the plaza. Oh, the plaza hasn't stopped. <laughs> We're now having to choose between heat and music. Still going. Maybe if we just had half open, you see. All right. So the very thing that makes us anticipate are the experiences that we think are so important in the past, these experiences that we treasure, these lessons that we've learned. And we actually believe that these lessons will be a proper guide to what we should be anticipating. So we merely are jumping from painful past experiences to anticipating certain things about the future, and that's all the ego mind does. It just makes it leaps completely over the present, completely over enjoyment. It regrets the past, and it's scared about the future. And that's the way we spend most of our time during the day. How can we be happy now if we are recalling into our mind something that was unhappy that happened? That's why the truth is so simple. How can we enjoy what we're doing when we're anticipating what we're going to do next? How can we enjoy where we're being if we are criticizing what's around us? If we go back and think of things that happened in the past that were embarrassing or so forth, what is the lesson that can be learned from that? Have you noticed how, as a world, we go over and over and over things like Nazi Germany and Vietnam and so forth, trying to learn lessons from it? And no one can quite come up with the lesson. No one's not quite sure what the lesson is. And of course, we all do this as individuals. We all have our Nazi Germanys and our Vietnams, and we're going back there and somehow thinking this is going to be a proper guide. The only thing that's a proper guide to the future is our present peace. That directs us. Fear is a counselor that will tell you to go in one direction, and peace is a counselor that will tell you to go another direction. And maybe the last thing that seems to be so common that the ego does is it sets up goals and uh, dreams. I was watching a movie with my little boy recently, a children's movie, and in there uh, the kids got everything that they'd ever wanted and they were immediately unhappy and there was a line in there which one kid said to the other, well, uh, maybe it's because we don't have anything to dream for anymore. They had all gotten it. 
Everything they had dreamed for was now theirs. So the ego, the great pleasures of the ego are just the opposite of what gives us happiness. And one is excitement, goals, aims. I'm not using the term goals in the sense of that which allows us to, to join with others in the present, but I'm talking about a goal that is future-oriented. So these things that we work for that are out there. And so always there is a, there is a great excitement with this. And this is possibly the primary pleasure of the ego, is the excitement about what might happen. Although it's, t it's riddled with anxiety, it's beginnings that the ego loves. It's not too interested in endings. As a matter of fact, it's like it's a zobra. It doesn't even wait for the ending. It's going on to the next thing that's going to happen. And the other thing that the ego turns to as a great source of pleasure is a preoccupation with the body. Now, it's not clear immediately how the body, a pre preoccupation with the body, is exactly the same as anticipating and regretting the past. Of course, in miracle says that the body exists only in the past and in the future. This is not readily apparent, but possibly it would be apparent to you that you could say, what are the things I deeply enjoy, the great satisfactions in my life? One of them is in which I, my mind is in the present, this activity where I can rest, and the other one is this activity in which I do not have to be constantly focused on my body. And so any bodily consciousness eventually leads to distress. And when the ego gets distressed, it will dive into one of these things. It will either set a goal. So this is why it's often not a good idea to counsel someone who's suicidal by trying to get them to set still another goal. Yes, but you haven't done this in life, meaning set another goal. Because that will wash out. And they will be even more depressed than they were before. And going diving into uh, all forms of addictions and that kind of thing is the other way that the ego tries to adjust to, to its depression. They'll dive deeply into drugs or sex or something like that. And this, of course, leads to the greatest unhappiness that the person has probably ever experienced, eventually. So what do we do about all this? If we can see that we could be so much happier, we could love so much more, we could enjoy our children and our friends much more deeply. If we see that we're missing even the beauty in this world, the light patterns that come through the window, the sound of the bells, what is it that we can do to begin opening ourselves up to this feast that surrounds us, this God that everyone says is ever-present? I'd like to give you five things that I personally have found helpful. 
take whatever ego suggestion is coming into your mind and first attempt to dismiss it. Just forget it. Just forget what so-and-so said to you. Just forget how you're going to get out of the, the park there when Zizobra's over. Just forget it. Now, your ego will say, well, that's too easy. Have you heard that phrase? Yeah. Well, that's too easy, you see. Uh, you see, lots of people on the spiritual path, and a lot of the world that's not on the spiritual path, has gotten caught up in making everything as difficult as possible. And so, for example, now we have to make everything. We have to make our own clothes, and our own bread, and our own yo yogurt, and we have to <laughs> generate our own electricity and all that. But this is all quite arbitrary. And if you, of course, if you like making your yogurt, please continue to do that because happiness is the, the whole thing. But why do we stop short? You see, it's very arbitrary. And now we have to make everything. Because, of course, the ego's great love is sacrifice. And, uh, but do you, do you notice, for example, that we make our clothes, but do we make our underpants? <laughs> No one makes their underpants. I think if we were to really do this right, we ought to make our underpants. Do we make our buttons? No. Possibly we could make our buttons out of uh, little buttons of garlic. That, that would keep the vampires away and cure the flu at the same time. Or we could... Uh, make our own needles. I, I, for example, think that we are not doing enough with cinnamon sticks. <laughs> These would make very good needles. We should think about this. It's big industry that's making the needles. And um, shoelaces. People make shoes, but do they make shoelaces? Goat hair would be good. If it's good for milk, it's good for shoes, don't you think? Now, you see, the, the ego does this, and if you'll, this is why when you look at it, you'll see how crazy it is. We almost got caught up at one time at this organization in growing, because this is such an accident. Of course, you've got to grow. You've got to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But if you just look at that, which is what we did, suddenly we asked, why? Why do we need to grow, and what would be the proper size to grow to? See, this the ego never asked that. Should we be double in size? Should we uh, should we move Should we move to a movie theater? Possibly fill an entire movie theater. Well, I can tell you that if we did that, we would then be asking: Should we move to a symphony hall? You see, and then should we move to a football stadium? There's no end to it. And then, oh no, we've now we've got to. It's got to be televised, and the whole world's got to watch it. You see. <laughs> The ego has no stopping point, and that's when you look at it, you'll see how silly it is, and you'll say, I think I'd like to be happy now. <laughs> so if you can dismiss it, dismiss it. If you can't dismiss it, walk around it. The only way past it is through it. Is that the way the saying goes? is incorrect unless you're talking about looking honestly at something. But the way that's often interpreted is it has to be difficult. 
And of course, you can make progress by fighting your way through everything, but you can walk around it and make progress much more quickly and much more easily. And this is something that many people on a spiritual path simply do not realize. They think there's only one way to do it, and that's the hardest possible way. And so, for example, you'll see children toughening their children by forcing them. We, uh, we were in San Diego recently, and uh, we were at Disneyland, and uh, little two- and three-year-old kids were being forced, screaming bloody murder on these rides that for them were very scary for them <laughs> because they were hearing real gunshots and seeing real fire, and, and they were seeing real bayonets stuck through people, and they were seeing what looked like real blood, and then they were told, well, this is pretend. You see, and they don't can't see what's pretend, but somehow this was going to toughen the child to do that. We do that even with simple things like we have to turn the light off. What do you mean? You don't have the light on. The child's asking that the light be on. But there's there's monsters in here. That's silly. Turn the light off. This is somehow supposed to toughen the child. Well, we carry the same attitude into adult life, and we think we somehow have to toughen ourselves. We have to take every challenge, and this is simply not true. We don't have to do that. There are, I'm sure you've read that there are people going around this country now kidnapping small children. Now, those of you who have small children might look at this in one of two ways. One is, well, I shouldn't worry about that. And if you can dismiss it and you do not worry about it at all and you're completely at peace about it, that is sufficient. But if you are worrying about it, why not do something about it so you won't worry about it? Are there certain things, are there certain places that your child is going where you think the child is subject to being kidnapped? Isn't it just simpler just to eliminate that? If, if some magazine is disturbing you, cancel the subscription. It doesn't have to be read. We don't have to, to listen to every program on television. If something is giving you indigestion, you might consider not eating it. The ego either adores or it hates. And for every person who adores you, there will be one who hates you. This is the only two emotions that the ego knows. Neither of them have anything to do with love and peace. As I talk to more larger audiences, I'm getting more critical mail. Now, in the beginning, I thought I had to read all those letters, somehow teach myself some great lesson from this, answer the person who would just write me another critical letter and say, no, I'd gotten it all wrong. <laughs> Now, as soon as I read the first few words and I see this is going to be a critical letter, I don't read it any longer. I just don't read the letter. It's very simple. I'm much more peaceful now. <laughs> now, the ego would say this is somehow heartless and cruel. It's not heartless and cruel to walk away from an attack. As a matter of fact, it may be not helpful to honor someone's attack because this somehow leads them to think that there was, maybe it was a good thing that they attacked you. Of course, it's never a good thing that we criticize someone or attack them. But that will always happen. Now, if, 
you cannot just walk around it that simply. Let's take, for example, the, the kidnapping of the child. Then you might try encircling the child in peace. If you're afraid of your car, if you're afraid of an automobile accident, you might try encircling your car in the peace of God as a mental image. This has its effect in the world. If you don't see how it could have an effect in a metaphysical sense, then possibly you could at least see that once you have blessed your car and you're less afraid of it and you're starting on this long trip across country and you've encircled your car in light in your own mind, you've blessed it in some way in your own mind. Possibly you could at least see that you would maybe be more alert. You'd be less preoccupied with accidents. That you might look more calmly at the road instead of being quite as scattered because you were so scared before. But it has an effect even beyond this. To encircle something or someone with your blessing will tend to protect them. It will not protect them absolutely unless you have, you're very, very far along. I am not far, along, far enough along. I'm not anywhere close to being far enough along that I can protect someone in an absolute sense. But this does have its effect. And it will at least bring you peace because you are doing something in those situations in which you think there is nothing you can do. If you can do something, of course, do it. The third thing that I would like to suggest is that you side with your own will. So the ego is a belief that we have a conflicted will. And to do something, anything, this is why we've talked about sitting down in peace, seeing what we want to do about the thing. To do something sides with your will. And once you side with your will, the ego steps aside because the ego is your belief that you have another will beside this will. And so, for example, if you eliminate... Uh, the one once a week where uh, somebody's taking your kid and a bunch of kids over to the mall and they're running around the mall fairly unsupervised and you're worried about kidnapping, to simply eliminate that particular thing is doing something. You're now siding with your will because you will to be peaceful. And when you will to be peaceful, the part of your mind that counsels you to be unpeaceful must step aside. And I know of no more seemingly magical tool to solving any problem whatsoever, whether it's a sexual problem in a marriage, very long-standing one, whether it's a, some, some old phobia or fear, some personality trait that distresses you that you still seem to have. If you will sit down, look closely at it, and say, let me do something overt, you'll be surprised at how the problem will begin to disappear far beyond the seeming effects of what you've done. Long-term sexual problems in marriage dissolve quite easily when the two people get together and decide to try something. They try something, maybe it doesn't work. Then they try something else. 
And maybe that doesn't work. And then they try something else. And you can look at the thing they've tried and you can't understand how this solved the problem. The reason it solved the problem was that they, they centered on their, the will that sprang from their heart. Something that was far deeper than their desire to be right about this issue. They turned to love. This one I want to, I want to warn you that not to try this one unless you can do this very, very happily. And that is to pray more. Trying to pray when we're not ready to pray is like trying to shift gears too soon in a car. The car will stall. But if you know the effect of praying, if you know what this does for you, if you've begun to sense that this transcends all the other suggestions that we've made here today by light years, if you can actually see the evidence of that in your heart and not intellectually so that it is a sheer pleasure to close your eyes and turn to God, then I'm telling you, you cannot do this too much. And I'm also telling you that no matter what your ego has thrown at you, I don't care what it has thrown at you, if you have gotten to the point where it is a pleasure for you to pray, you can walk past anything by simply praying more. I've told you that I use a watch that, uh, that beeps every hour. This is just simply to add more prayer. I've told you that Gail and I sit down before and after each event. Just for a moment, we pause and pray. We pray when we get up. We pray when we go to bed. Because it is such a pleasure. And when we are in particularly stressful situations, as we are sometimes when we travel, we have found if we will double the amount of praying we, we do, no matter what's going on, such as, well, it's never this hot in California. Every time I go out there, they say, well, it's never this hot in California. <laughs> of course, none of the, you know, the hotels, a lot of the hotels aren't air-conditioned because it's never that hot. So, and, uh, so no matter what's going on, no matter what seems to be assaulting you, even if it's the weather, doubling that simple activity, if it is a pleasure to you, will allow you to walk beyond it. So let me end with this. God is happiness. And the ego is our quite deep-seated desire to be miserable. God is our destiny, our home, and our identity. The place toward which we are traveling. How do we travel? There's only one thing to do, and that is to practice happiness. To practice happiness is to practice the presence of God and is to move forward. Anything that makes you stressful or fearful or unhappy simply stops your walk toward God. To practice happiness is to love God. To practice happiness is to love yourself and your friends. And to love God is to love everything. To simply practice happiness opens our heart, relaxes our mind, 
heals our body and shows us that we don't have anything to be scared of. We are not going to be hurt. And we have not been abandoned on this globe. And it's all going to turn out just fine.